Hi, welcome again to TSE Pods, the podcast series of the Taipei School of Economics and Political Science. In today's episode, we continue to learn from Professor Amitava Charya about international relations. In his recent talk in TSE, he outlined and explained eight key areas where international relations is changing, from hegemony to pluralization, to area studies, to a futuristic world that is post-hegemonic, pluralistic, and multi-civilizational. Let's listen to what Professor Acharya has to say. The key shift of the first one is uh, from hegemonic, kind of polaristic, uh, or polar conception, like multipolar, bipolar, to a more pluralistic, what I call a multiplex world. In simple world, the idea of a multiplex world. The, the, the world is, uh, the best way to define world order is not to think of hegemony. We only had hegemony twice on the global level scale, British and uh, American. The British hegemony lasted not more than 50 years. Uh, and even during that time, uh, Germany was a key challenger uh, in terms of population and industry. So just think about a hegemony as a permanent enduring con- condition of international relations. It's simply wrong. Uh, in 5,000 years of history, you have regional hegemony. The Roman Empire was a regional hegemon, yes. Uh, the Han Dynasty was a regional hegemon, but global hegemony, only Britain and the United States, and Britain for 50 years. The United States is like 45 to now, although it's already uh, becoming passe. So the, most of the time, the world has been non-hegemonic. Now, regional empires, regional powers, and connected with each other. I don't like to call it multipolar because that's a very Eurocentric term. Um, multipolarity is uh, based on, polarity is based on material power, economic, military power. It doesn't really talk about ideational uh, exchanges or relationships or, or uh, um, what do you call interdependence. Um, it is kind of subsumed. It's not given primary uh, front and center place as in polarity, material power is front and center. Uh, you don't become a, sub, a, a great power through ideas. Uh, you have to have material power. But in this conception, countries that are not major material powers can have significant influence in international relations. And that could be states, also non-state actors, like corporations and social movements as much as uh, states. Um, then uh, each of them, I talk about power, norms, uh, changes, all these fields, changes in the field of comp- regionalism, from comparative integration to comparative regionalism, the definition and conceptualization of security from national to human security, area studies, which is a study of regions, study of countries, um, how that has changed from uh, a national focus to a transnational and comparative approach, agency, who creates what and how, uh, again, making it much more pluralistic, uh, diversity, diversified rather than giving all the credit to big powers in the West, and uh, Eurocentric to non-Western global IR, which is kind of the umbrella concept, and finally the futuristic world that uh, we may be entering into, which will be post-hegemonic, pluralistic, and multi-civilizational. Now these are the eight areas I've worked on, and each of them uh, is backed by a substantial amount of work that I don't have the time to go into, uh, but uh, you need to really uh, take a look at this particular uh, literatures, different areas of literatures that I have written, others have written. Uh, you can find them in a lot of my own writings. But I'll just give them a very quick overview. 
uh, maybe one day I'll write an, a paper on it. So all world order, um, the challenging hegemonic stability theory that you need a hegemon. Uh, you know, Fariz Zakaria, the famous guy from CNN said, uh, the, the one law of uh, history is that you need a hegemonic power to provide peace and stability. That peace and stability is best served when there is a hegemonic power, meaning United States or Britain. That's never been the case in history. And in fact, hegemonic uh, stability theory has been discredited. But in the policy realm, and some academic uh, discourses live on. Actually, there are a lot of examples uh, where you can have peace and prosperity without a hegemon. And the Indian Ocean before the arrival of European powers was a very good example, where there was a, the largest trading network in the world because we didn't have uh, Atlantic trade those days. And uh, we also had very little Pacific trade, maybe localized trade, but the Indian Ocean traded from East Africa to Indonesia. To, from Japan to, uh, now again, Indonesia, India. It was a, the largest trading network in the world, and there was not a single hegemonic power there. China was not a hegemon. China might have been a regional hegemon in East Asia, but not in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and the Indian Ocean, China was just like another player, uh, except the little Ming voyages, but even that didn't last very long. India, very well positioned in the Indian Ocean, uh, centrally positioned, but Again, I told you the biggest, most powerful Indian state, the Mughal Empire, didn't want to touch the ocean. Uh, so the ocean was free. And uh, it was the, the Southeast Asians, Malacca, uh, Srivijaya, and uh, also small regional states of India, like uh, the Cholas, and uh, they actually provided public goods and security. And, uh, but it was people who traded. It was the merchants, it was the priests. Uh, sometimes uh, merchants carried priests, like Buddhists and Brahmin priests, but also adventurers, they created the Indian Ocean Trading Network. Now, and it, that was fairly substantial and fairly secure, of course not perfectly secure, but uh, the volume of trade was uh, huge, and uh, so, so that required no hegemon, uh, no hegemony of any, uh, any kind. So the liberal hegemony thesis is the outgrowth of hegemonic stability, the, uh, the work of people like John Eikenberry, uh, they talk about the uh, uh, United States being a liberal hegemonic power, benign hegemon, providing public goods. Again, uh, there are a lot of issues with that theory. United States hegemony was not, uh, has not been very benign for most of the world, maybe for Europe, maybe for uh, some countries in Asia, but uh, generally the liberal international order was not very liberal and not much of an order. There are a lot of conflicts and violence in most of the non-Western world uh, outside of Europe. And uh, it was not global either. It was very selective. It was a club of the West, a transatlantic club. China was not part of it. India was not part of it. Uh, they might have you know, become integrated into it in the 1990s, but still only economically, politically, uh, not so. So, uh, so uh, or I also dis uh, uh, reject the idea of unipolar and multipolar because, they're, again, they're very was based on material power. They don't talk much about ideas and interconnectedness among the poles. Uh, so I use the term multiplex world, uh, which is a term that I've been promoting and getting a lot of uh, traction these days. But uh, some of the books I did, uh, 2014 book, the Chinese translation, the Japanese translation, there's an Indonesian translation just about to come out, there's a Korean translation. I think that, that term is gaining traction. So the idea is that current world order is not multipolar, it used to be hegemonic, unipolar, but now it's moving towards 
a multiplex world where there will be no hegemon, uh, there will be still interconnectedness, but not this rampant globalization we had seen in the past 30 years. Uh, there will be more uh, non-Western-led globalization. And uh, also, uh, it will be um, a world of ideas as much as of material power. So there's a lot more to that than I can explain now. Uh, norm diffusion, this has uh, been a major change in the field of constructivism. Initially, I mean, there's a lot of ideas here. But in one sentence, that when you talk about spread of ideas or ideology or norms, the truth of all, for all ages is that ideas are never accepted, adopted. They're always adapted. There's always a local agency. The local actor, the recipients actually have more agency in how the ideas are accepted, to what extent they're accepted. So why the same idea of, uh, say, uh, capitalism or democracy uh, are accepted more in one place, not in another place, is actually had to do with the people who receive those ideas. And uh, therefore, if you talk about an ideational view of international relations, uh, you have to pay attention to where the ideas are coming to, not where they're coming from. And uh, you know, this might sound commonsensical, but it wasn't in IR theory 20, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, my first article on this was 2004, and some of the books came out later. Uh, so now it is very much commonly accepted that uh, it's localization that drives all politics. And, uh, and it's not the McDonald's localization. Now, McDonald's go to India and doesn't sell beef burger, but sells lamb burger. In that case, it was McDonald's that does the localization. Localization I'm talking about is when you do it by the local actors themselves, what they want. They may not even want McDonald's. I know they may have something else. So the choice, the agency, which ideas are accepted, how much of an idea is accepted, is done by the locals. And in localization, in the most uh, uh, successful forms of transmission of ideas, uh, happens when it enhances, not displaces, the identity of the local actors. So the reason why Alexander the Great conquered most of Asia, you know, what is called West Asia now, uh, but uh, it's called Hellenization. I mean, started before Alexander, but went all the way to India, uh, the border of India. But when Alexander the Great uh, went back, his successes continued. But uh, 600, years, 700 years later. Uh, when the, especially the Arabs took over, uh, Muslims took over, there is not, not much Hellenization left in this world. It's basically disappeared. Um, but uh, when you talk about, compare that with another, the Sanskrit cosmopolis, the spread of Indian ideas, there was no conquest except very briefly uh, some interventions by the southern Indian state of Chola. But India did not invite China to spread Buddhism. Couldn't do it. Um, but uh, Buddhism played a very important role in legitimation of the Tang Dynasty. Southeast Asia is full still of uh, Hindu-Buddhist influence. And again, the reason why it had a deeper impact, and, and even today you can say, okay, the Islamization in Indonesia, Malaysia, has uh, displaced Hindu-Buddhism to, to a large extent, but not entirely. But Cambodia, Burma, Thailand uh, remain uh, Hindu-Buddhist states. and. Uh, the reason why is because they were not imposed, they were borrowed uh, by local uh, elites the local, to legitimize themselves. They were not brought by conquest, they were brought by voluntary, what they call idea of the local initiative. So using that, in fact I study deeply um, the transmission of Buddhism as foundation to my scholarship on IR. Uh, and uh, uh, 
you can see that uh, the, these concepts come from that kind of peaceful transmission of ideas where local, the recipient has more agency than the so-called idea giver. Uh, and um, that's why Indian temples in Southeast Asia don't look like Indian temples in India. They look like Southeast Asian temples. The biggest temples in the temple of uh, uh, the world is actually in Cambodia, not in India, Angkor Wat. The biggest Buddhist complex in the world is not in India or China. It's in Borobudur, in, in Indonesia. They look nothing like uh, temples in Indonesia, in India or, or China. So, so because there is always a strong local element, constructing them, adapting them, and using them. International relations work exactly like that. Many ideas are accepted, adapted, localized, but to enhance, not displace, the identities of the recipient. That ends today's podcast. Join us again next episode only here at TSE Pods, Musings Over Coffee. To know more about TSE, follow us on our social media and visit our website at tse.nthu.edu.tw.